Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 12th, 2022. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm a freelance filmmaker, and I'm here with the editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we are going to be talking about a raft of thefts that have been plaguing the film industry, mostly in the South. I'm, we are going to be talking about the pipeline problem for showrunners and what are some options to be done about it. We've got two bits of tech news this week. One, Massive, one of my favorite online file transfer tools, finally did a thing that somebody needed to do for the last 20 years, and I'm so happy they did it. And I even think George will be into that tech news because it's legit slick. It's like so good. And then a brand new drone from DJI, which is weird. So DJI released a bunch of stuff like well before NAB and then well after NAB and then nothing at NAB, which is bold. All that and some Twitter arguments about whether or not Mr. Fredrickson is a NIMBY and no discussion of the Avatar trailer this week (laughs) on the No Film School podcast. All right, our first story this week, I'm going to talk about because I love The New Yorker. I'm aware that people on the internet like to make fun of The New Yorker. I'm aware that Family Guy made its joke about The New Yorker having no anuses. But I've always, I've been a New Yorker for 20 years. I enjoy me some New Yorker. New Yorker's great. The New Yorker ran an article this week about, specifically about a raft of thefts on film sets. And I honestly felt like it was underreported. It was one of those New Yorkers where I, like you, like it was like halfway through the article and I was like, okay, now the meat's coming. And then it was nothing. Then it was done. And I was like, what? Like it never catches the thieves. It never talks about the bigger implications of the theft. And it didn't even meditate on like the thievability of film stuff. So here's what the basic story is, is Atlanta is a new booming film hub. And like every boom town ever, and this is not unique to film, and this is not unique to the South. And I, I do want to say I respect the New Yorker for never being like a particular Atlanta problem is crime because a lesser writer could have taken that angle. And I respect the fact that the New Yorker did not say that because like any boom town, like Alaska oil boom towns, North Dakota boom towns, like California, the gold rush crime is always part of a boom. Like that is a thing that's nothing inherent to the South. But Atlanta has been booming in the film industry for 20 years. And with that has come a crime wave of stolen camera equipment, including some really interesting, like, I, I don't want to be too critical of the article because there was some really interesting stuff there that I found fascinating about like, you know, smaller production companies, building rental businesses, building relationships, finding their gear stolen, finding it for sale on Instagram, trying to get the cops interested, finding the cops aren't interested, which is interesting. Because then the story sort of like petered out. And I was like, well, no, but like, dude, New York used to have a detective. Hmm. All police forces are complicated, but New York used to have a detective who was dedicated to film gear theft. Like, like I I have his info. You can interview him. Like, he's around. He doesn't like to talk about the film gear stuff because he's moved on to other things. But like, for a long time, he was the film gear guy. And like, there's a whole interesting thing about the fact that he was like, oh, yeah, you need to really understand film gear to do this work. Because... You need to know that there's like a whole, I mean, this is my example, not his, but like there's a whole difference between like round front Lomo anamorphics and square foot Lomo anamorphics. And just because it says Lomo on it doesn't mean it's worth a lot of money or it doesn't mean there's a lot of examples or you need to understand that like no one privately owns Panavision gear. Any, there's two exceptions. There's the Airy 2C that fell off the submersible shooting the Titanic and then a diver got, and then there's a prop Panaflex that sold on eBay that was used on a universal ride. But other than those two things, no one privately owns Panavision. They own everything in internal Panavision. So like if someone's selling a set of Panavision lenses, like they're a thief, 
So like <laughs> it it takes So you expert- can't be dumb is what you're saying and try to sell that. <laughs> well, and it takes expertise. <laughs> because it knows you got it right. Yeah. Like it takes someone having and so like and I was like bummed by the New Yorker story because I was like, no, like in context, this isn't an Atlanta problem. This is like whenever booms happen. And then the other thing that's fascinating to me about this crime wave is that like the desirability of camera gear as like a means of creative expression. Like in the story, there was a great story. I mean, there's so much I loved in this story. Everybody should check it out. But there's this great story where somebody is trying to sell the camera gear and they clearly sort of understand what it's like to sell to people with dreams. It's like, ah, oh, I got those reds. You want to use those reds on your video? Like there's a pitch there, the red camera. The, it, there's a great aside in the New Yorker that's like a red camera is a popular, you know, it's very <laughs> like for people who aren't filmmakers. But there's a pitch there that like, the reason why this is a sellable commodity on the used market is because we all have this fantasy that access to this forbidden equipment at an affordable price is going to help us elevate our dreams to the point where Werner Herzog even tells that anecdote about stealing an Airy 3 from the Munich Film School. And like tells, I don't know if he's told it lately, but like I've totally watched interviews where he's like, I did not steal the camera. The camera was mine. I saw it there. <laughs> I knew it meant to be with me. That's the worst Werner Herzog impression I've ever done. I'm usually stronger. <laughs> it's a weak point. It's pretty solid. I want to go back to one of the first things you said, which was just about the New Yorker as a publication, which is, I think the New Yorker is a great publication and people should continue to support it. And if you're the kind of person who's going to side with family guy over the New Yorker on anything, then I don't know, man, you're out of luck (laughs) in general. So let's go with the New Yorker. I don't care if the family, if family guy made fun of the New Yorker, you still, the New Yorker's great. And they do- long in-depth pieces on things that are just like, I, I mean, they get under the skin and into the corners and the crevices and, and they do great work. They're great. Yeah. I mean, the um, family guy was just mocking them for being a little uptight and like the New Yorker is a little are. uptight. Yes. And like, but like in this day okay. and age, I totally fair to make fun of the uptight pretentiousness of it. But on the other hand, like we live in a very strange time for publications and a lot of them are doing, I mean, Amazon owns Washington Post. New York Times is becoming sort of a self-parody. So there's just so much about like what's happening with media that I feel like New Yorker is still one that that like its flaws are getting so they're just seeming so shrunken down compared to the flaws at large in this field. But that said, this is the kind of great long New Yorker piece, even as you presented, I did not read it, that I've always loved where they tell you a story, like a big story about something strange and fascinating that's happening that may or may not relate to your life. This one relates to many of ours. And the side thing that you're bringing up is also interesting to me that this is about selling people on their dreams a little bit and taking advantage of the willingness to acquire something through nefarious means because it can be part of your launch pad to something that feels so meaningful and important and close to you and hard to attain that it's almost like, well, isn't it kind of fair? Like, shouldn't I just get it? Like, you know, like it's so hard to get it. It's so hard to do everything in this industry that people could look past some ethical or morality. Like they didn't actually steal it, right? Yeah. Um, if they're buying it and it's stolen. and they, So there's a lot there. There's a I lot just there. Loved, I loved the nuance of the pitch where the thief clearly understood that it like the people view these as a stair step to dreams 
And I feel yeah. like whenever you are selling stolen goods, there's always like, I mean, not that I've done a lot of it. I don't think I've done any of it, but you know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to project a little bit to stealing stolen goods. I think there's a little bit of like selling a fantasy there where it's like, you know, the specific pitch was like, you could use these on your videos, which is like, we all know music videos have low budgets at, at, at the mass level, but like, maybe I can do some good videos that move up to the bigger budgets. And so maybe this is a moral compromise that lets me have that stepping stone to get up to the bigger budgets. And, you know, an insurance company probably reimbursed for the cameras anyway. So like, who am I hurting or whatever? Like, it's sure. this, it's this moment that I feel like the New Yorker really captured quite beautifully. Can, can we, can we indulge a, a brief New Yorker digression for a moment that everybody, I think all of our listeners should be aware of? Sure. So there was a New Yorker story three or four years ago called Cat People. Do you remember the New Yorker story, Cat no. People? It owned the internet for a week. So it was a story about a young woman going to college who starts dating a guy who works at her movie theater. Like she's in college. She needs money. She works at the, the local movie theater and she starts dating a townie. And he's like a cat. He's like a cat dude in his thirties and she's like 18. And it's just, you know, it's, it, it sort of really captured the zeitgeist. Like it blew up. It was all over Twitter. It got options to a movie. The movie's going to star cousin Greg from secession as the cat oh, person. Nice. Like it just, it had a moment. It had a complete nice. moment. And the reason why I, I bring it up, <laughs> I, I'm kind of shocked you missed cat people because like cat person, sorry, it's a cat person. It was, it had such a moment and it had so much schadenfreude because like, you know, the person who'd written the short story that was already getting turned into a movie, they were like a year out of their MFA program and like, you know, they had the short story and like what a mitzvah to even get it in the New Yorker and then mm. to have it on the internet and get optioned and then have cousin Greg star in it. Like all within, like it was a huge thing. What's crazy to me is that that owned the internet for a minute, and then like two years later, it came out that it was a true story, like the, but not the writer's true story. Like oh, it was the next, the cat person's next girlfriend, who was like a full grown adult, like she was twenty eight and he was thirty five or whatever. She found out that his previous girlfriend had been eighteen, so she wrote this story about the relationship of like an 18 year old and a 35 year old using all of the real details of like what movie theater they met met in, what her hometown was. And so this person like, and she's written an article about it and this did not blow up the internet in some weird way. She wrote an article about like, Oh, I was reading the New Yorker. And then all of a sudden someone was writing my life story in the middle of the New Yorker. What the fuck is going on? Amazing. But her rebuttal in this weird way, the news cycle works like cat, person became a huge part of the news cycle and then the rebuttal of like hey cat person is me that's fucked is didn't and i'm like but that's so fucking <laughs> that's, weird that's the interesting part of the story in a weird way yeah <laughs> and it's all so messy story. and it's like yeah of course we can steal other people's stories and change them into things and repurpose but like could you have changed the name of the hometown and the name of the movie theater and could you have changed like could you have cycled it into other things like the, the whole thing is so messy and weird and then cat person died of COVID. So, oh, you know, I know at like <laughs> wow. 30 something. Wow. Wow. Back to camera theft. The takeaway for filmmakers. <laughs> you took, you really took us on a trip there. <laughs> I know. I think that was my pitch that I should get to make the cat person movie. Um, you hear that producers? I mean, the, I know the, the, movie, is a, the movie is a palimpsest. It's text upon text. Like it starts off one way. It starts twisting and turning. You get like there. That's the movie, obviously. Like the oh, movie yeah. is not just the incident story. It's this, it's the whole, it's, it's, um, I mean, everybody knows New Yorker in this, everybody in our community on this podcast knows the New Yorker in this context, which is adaptation. 
And this feels like yes. another adaptation style thing where it's like, isn't it more, it's a, not just about what was the content of the story. It's about the context of the yeah. sto- of that story in the New Yorker, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and the fun thing about it, I mean, I, I imagine they're revising the film to take this into account. I hope they are. The fun <laughs> thing about it is it really gets into arguments over who gets to tell the story. They're both yeah. women. They both, you know, they, they can both make arguments for having lived in the area geographically and both have dated the cat person. So they both have some <laughs> argument to make the, the case that they get to tell the story of cat person. I mean, this is now it's now it's become about filmmaking again or storytelling. Yeah. And what I think is interesting, I keep saying that, but but about this about this thing is now there's another interesting layer, which is so you meet this guy, or you know, say you meet somebody, you have a relationship, you think this is weird, there's a story here, but you decide you make this this storytelling call where you're like you know, it would be better told if it was the prior girlfriend and not me because she was 18 and because maybe it's easier for me to write. Like what goes into that determination of like, I don't want to write it about me. Of course, you're always going to write it about you though. Like how could it not be about her on some level? Because she's writing about a relationship that <laughs> that she's having, just pretending she's the, the last person who had it. I love that. that. It's just so weird. I know. It's amazing. Yeah. It's all filmmaking. It's like all of filmmaking and who gets to tell a story and what tools do we use to tell the story? <laughs> and like th- that, that's the words we get to use to tell the story and where they get published, the New Yorker, and also the cameras that we use to photograph the images of the story. I mean, it's true. Reminder- it reminds me of like, um, of like these things, obviously completely different scale, but I always think about how when you hear from the, the Tolkien's, the, the George R. R. Martin's or the Lucas's of the world, they'll always be like, I built this big thing. But then I tried to figure out where's the interesting place to start for like just one little story within it. Like I built a big concept. And I feel like this woman was like this cat person guy. He's a big, he's like a world building level concept. He's like Middle Earth. And she was like, where do I want to start the story? Do I want to start it with me? Or do I want to start it with this girl who I never met, who was his girlfriend before me? Yeah, it is sort of funny. I think that's a quote that needs to be written more places or whatever, the like, where do I start within the world? Because I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a screenwriting class or a pitch session or whatever, and the person only has the giant world. And it's like, okay, so here's the giant world. And I'm like, okay, well, where do we start? And it's like, okay, so we're going to start 3,000 years. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, what's the story that first engages us? Like, what is that first, like, I, journey? Yes. I love it. I emphasize, I want to emphasize it as hard as possible because it's not just about the idea of in medias res where you're like, I'm going to start where the action is. And not, it's about knowing that, that, so the bigger your world, the better little piece you choose to tell is because you're like, well, I'm informed by all this stuff I know around it. And like, as we've learned, as we start to see these people spread their, their tendrils outward, like, Hey, let's do a Lord of the Rings that takes place 200 years before. It's like, nah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we want that. I think what we liked was that you had that somewhere in your mind, but you were like, but no, we're starting in this unique little spot, like right here. Like we ended up seeing what was happened before in Star Wars and what happens after. Not so great. What we wanted was that little, that little spot that was like, this could be a really cool, like arc and a few arcs within this big canvas. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Man, we went on a journey from Georgia to Middle Earth, (laughs) all in one story. I'm going to wrap with this. I'm going to say, protect your gear. Keep it locked up well. (laughs) Remember, if you're renting it to people, that they're going to see what you have, and they might get excited about it. You're always meeting new people. So like heavy security for all of your equipment is vital. And insurance. And insurance. Oh, insurance and voluntary parting. All right, moving on to the next story. Vice ran a story. Man, am I just in like critical journalism feedback mode? Because I had so many notes on this story as well. Vice ran a very good (laughs) story on a great topic, which is the traditional path of the showrunner. The traditional like apprenticeship model of television is currently broken. And like there's so much good research here, but the writer is so hard. The writer is working very hard to create like a disagreement between Damon Lindelof and Griot Marchaud. What's Griot Marchaud's first name? I forget. Uh, so the writer of this Vice piece is working very hard to take two writers, Lindelof and Griot Marchaud, and create like controversy b- between them where they're like, Griot Marchaud says this, and then Damon Lindelof says this. And I'm like, but they're saying like almost the same thing with like a tiny little bit of nuance. But the writer like over and over, like three times, tries to make it about like these two worldviews of show running. And I was like, but but one is clearly talking about like the traditional network like homicide life on the street show of the early nineties. And the other is talking about today's modern, like it was so strange that like artificial conflicts that I felt like was trying to be gymmed up there. But Mm. the point remains show running is broken because we used to have these 22 episode seasons and a TV writer was hired for the run of the thing. You'd have the episode you wrote. You'd be going to set on the episode you'd wrote. You'd be in the editing room on the episode you wrote. So you'd be learning all these non editing skills so that if you eventually got a show made of your own where you were the showrunner or, you know, and showrunners rarely in the credits, it's usually like writer and executive producer, but everyone knows what a showrunner is. If you're the showrunner of a show, you've had all those formative experiences that get you there. But now we're moving to this thing of like the streamers have sort of broken everything in their classic new media, move fast and break things model where they're like, they're doing mini rooms where the writer's room like writes before the show even starts shooting. And so by the time the show's shooting, all the writers are on to other projects and you know, instead of a 22 episode season, they're doing like six episode seasons. And so there's just like not the opportunities to grow young talent into being ready to show run. And I think that that is a legitimate argument that is worth engaging with because it does really lead you to think like, all right, well, what are the avenues then to training people? One thing that was interesting to me is like every film school I pay attention to has tried to do a lot of this work. Like where I teach, Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, we have a show running class and like all of those skills, like the I'm a writer and I know how to sit in post and I know how to go to set and I know how to supervise a budget. Like we try and train our students in. And I feel like every film school, I mean, maybe one or two don't, but like, like it was so interesting. I got through this whole article and I was like, but, but this is actually something that film schools work really hard on training people to do, to know story and budgeting. It was weird that that was sort of like absent in the whole thing. 
Yeah, there is, this is a huge long piece. Again, kind of like talking about New Yorker style pieces. Great journalism, very in-depth. There is so much in here you can learn about how things work or have worked. There are top, there's topics and subtopics. There's a whole little thing about how race and gender play into opportunity, which is, we obviously know about, but is just a reminder of, of like, and there's one thing in there that like kind of bugged me a little was like, in that context, but just in general, Lindelof talks about how he wrote a pilot with J.J. Abrams for Lost and then J.J. Abrams went off to direct a movie and he was kind of left, as he says, holding the baby, which I feel like is annoying because it's kind of like a, well, yes, that happens that that happens to a Damon Lindelof. That doesn't happen, as, as someone else points out in the article, another showrunner person of color, like that does not happen to people of color. But also, it's kind of like, you know, a cop out <laughs> a little bit for just like, well, I didn't really know. I just ended up running the show. Well, you had, you had a lot of time there, pal. But I think that there's a, another interesting point about that. And it is fair. He was not trained. He was not ready in his mind. And he sort of explains Watchmen being a very different experience or the leftovers, which he also did because he had a little more experience, which goes to your point of mentorship and training. And getting people to be better at things is not really a part of the way the industry functions to the industry's own detriment. So allowing people to develop skills, make mistakes, and grow is strangely absent. And and I mean, I, I say strangely, but I feel like there's a lot of good reasons why. There's a lot of explanations as for why. But one of the things that's being described here is a writer's room where, you know, everyone, it'll be a, maybe you're, you have a good show, a good season, and everybody in the writer's room is getting opportunities to pitch pilots for other shows. There was definitely a time where you could not be, I think, a showrunner without a lot of years in a writer's room first. Like you had to wait a long time. There were less turns at bat, though. And so there's a lot of complicating factors. But the just the general issue of people not being trained, learning, and developing the ability. And I'm going to throw in one more thing, just because I love it from this article that's that's buried in there, is that not every writer's room needs to be hell. And there's a general feeling, you and I talk about this a lot in the context of the industry, but it's true with writer's room. Some writer's rooms, I know the writers from them personally. I know some of the showrunners personally. They're just hell. They just grind people to dust. And some don't. And it doesn't impact success or quality to go one way or the other. You'd be amazed. But there is a general belief that if you're that tormentor, that that nightmare person, you're doing good work. It's not always true. Vince Gilligan is the one they cite as being like everyone in that room, quote, the writers would take a bullet for him and the shows are good. (laughs) So it doesn't have to be hell. That's just always a fun one to point out to me, for me. There is a beautiful, beautiful thing in that of like, yeah. I mean, like my minor quibble about creating drama where there isn't drama aside, it's a beautiful article that talks a lot about like, you can be a good person and be a showrunner. You do not have to be full of drama to be a showrunner. I, I just wanted to riff a little bit on what you talked about with like, the industry's apprenticeship problem. Cause I think it's a broader thing because, you know, I teach in a film school. I'm like very, I'm obsessed yeah. with my students having careers. Like it's something I think about a lot. Like it's really important for me 
that like I'm launching students onto a path to have a career. And there are areas in film that have long apprenticeship traditions, like cinematography and editing. Yes. Like if you are interested in being an editor, you can go and get a job assistant editing and do that for five or six years and learn and make mistakes and recover and then bump up to editing smaller stuff and edit stuff on the weekends and like end up cutting studio stuff in 15 years or like cinematography. Like you can go out as a second AC and spend a couple of years doing that and learning and making mistakes and growing and, and bump your way up. And what's interesting to me is like the lack of that for these jobs, like show running and directing and yes, Producing sometimes writing. Well, I mean, there's a stra- there is. I guess a, there like, is producing. I, yeah, I guess there can I be legit, some. You can- I know legit powerful producers who started as PAs, who were like yeah. PAs for a couple of years, and then they were like lead PA, and then they were coordinators, and then they were managers, and then they were like, and like they now have tons of power, and are like yes. huge. Like and and producing- there will be there, there are producers who will bring in like junior producers and work with them and within their company. So I misspoke on that one, but directing yeah. for sure, partly because you're on an island and you're competing in theory, even though not you don't really need to be. But that's sort well, of and also because up. the jobs that should be the path first eighty, second eighty are very much not like artistic. Like yes, you are making art, some creative decisions as a first eighty, and their first eighties who become directors and James McTeague is great, and there are others. But like you know, it's a different. It's a different animal. And I think that, you know, there's that old Fellini joke, right? I'm going to do the accent because why not? I already did a bad Herzog. A journalist came up to Fellini and said, Fellini, how come there's no great film school in Italy? And apparently (laughs) Fellini said, are you kidding me? They'll take all our jobs. We should be stabbing them in their cribs. (laughs) And um, we'll see if I, I, am I getting canceled for the Italian accent? We'll see. We'll find out. But, you know, there is this idea of like, there is an idea of scarcity and there's a fear of scarcity. And I think that that is some of it. Whereas like, you know, cinema, the cinematographers I know always have like all of these people they're mentoring and they're growing and they're training. And I think it's just because they live in a universe that feel, and, and because of that, it feels really full where it feels like there's always stuff coming around and there's always stuff to do and there's always projects and there's always like things around. And I feel like, but what's, you know, what's weird about that. It's true. And then you think like, well, maybe there's more, but there's not. I mean, there's one cinematographer per project. There's usually one director per project. There's so many writers per project. You're, it's surprising that how much the writer's world is not a friendly one. I mean, there are some instances where someone will, like, you know, have someone that they kind of bring along and then graduate on to other things. And there's been many examples, but so often it's so the backstabbiness thing, or or not that because that's not how people people are very. Yeah, it's it's more just like people are in competition. They're not trying always to help one another or develop one another. And even the powers that be, while they obviously have financial reasons to think this way, I think that studios or or production companies, you would think would want to develop talent. Like they would want to develop their rosters or their people like, well, you know, we'll start you here and if it doesn't go well, like let's figure out how to how to bring along that talent and and realize its potential. There's just not a mentality like that. It's kind of like it's such a the what have you done for me lately? And then just it doesn't feel that way. It just doesn't feel like it's designed for people to mentorship to be a, a guiding path in the in the directing sphere. And it's a shame. Yeah, it really is, especially because you know. 
it's not an easy job that you can learn how to do in three years. Like, you know, the three years of film school is like the beginning of a process of like continuing to grow as an artist. And like, even that, like the, the paths from there, it is interesting to try and think about a different industry or a different world in which people have a longer time to explore and grow before I mean, the a lot of artists on their shoulders. used to take mentorships. Like there used to be more, I think in different cultures or times, there used to be more of a, like, you can, you can work for a while with a great artist and develop your, you know, you could be an assistant director. That's like, you know, first AD, but what if you're like a second unit and you're working alongside somebody who's experienced and, you know, if, if Clint Eastwood is directing and he's 90 and maybe there's a director on set who's younger and is learning with him and, and also helping him you know, make his days or whatever. Although I don't think he ever has had a problem with that, but whatever it is, you know, there's a way to give and take and cross pollinate. And I remember like, wasn't there, maybe it was Gosford Park. I'm not sure, but I think Altman towards the end of his time, they needed to have like a pinch hitter backup, like, like for insurance purposes because of his age and his health status. And I think it was Anderson had to be on the set of uh, Prairie Home Companion. Okay. Yeah. So because, it was later than that, but yeah. yeah. And I, and I'm sure like, you know, PT by then was, was established, but I still feel like it's cool from my perspective, thinking about them being like in, in on set together and just developing or learning in the moment, you know, with one another. Like, I don't, I think that's cool. I think it would be cool if we knew that like, you know, when st- it would make me more excited, honestly, if like on West Side Story, for example, it's like, okay, you know, Spielberg's been doing this for a long time. He's very good at it. He can do whatever he wants, essentially. Wouldn't it be cool if you knew there was like a younger director who had maybe had one or two movies under their belt who was there and was like, not billed as co-director, but billed as some other version of sub-director. And you're like, that's a career now I'm kind of interested in because, you know, worked with Spielberg and learned and, and I'm kind of interested to see the movie. I don't know. Collaboration. I think we. I think we place too much of the like. The director is the mind of the movie, and everything is them, and they have to be the pure artist of it, and you know all that. Nonsense. I mean, I think it's also really interesting to think about it in terms of a life of continual growth. So, for instance, I mean, PT is a great example of this in two cases. So famously, you know, he was the shadow for. Robert Altman, after making Punch Truck Love, his fourth feature. And in between Magnolia and Punch Truck Love, he asked for and got permission to observe the writer's room on Punch Truck Love to learn about writing comedy. So, like, you know, post Magnolia, some argument could be made that you're like, all right, well, you're done. Like, Magnolia is fantastic. So you are now like, you are a director. Yeah. You do you don't have to keep learning things. You can just do you can just go. And he clearly felt like he was like, no, like I've done a movie that is very, 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 very good. And I still would like to continue to grow and see like what is available to me as I like pursue learning from other people. And then, you know, going back to Spielberg, one of the few arenas where you do get that kind of close observation. I remember Matthew Kasovitz who was in, uh, who directed a great movie called La Aine. Like if you haven't seen Lane, I mean, I obviously saw it young because it's my last name, but it's great. It's a wonderful <laughs> movie. Young Seymour Cassell, like, or Vincent Cassell, not Seymour Cassell. And like eight years after it came out, he was still working as an actor. I think he still works as an actor. 
but he was already working as an actor and he got cast in Munich and people were like, so that means I get, you know, somebody asked some question about like, you know, why are you doing Munich, slowing down your directing career or whatever? And he's like, are you kidding me? I get to go be in a Spielberg movie and watch him work. Like, you know, yeah. and like, there's this delusion I think everybody has that there is some point at which you have arrived. And I think in order to keep growing and pursuing your industry, like you, you want to keep, like I venture a guess that Spielberg had the opportunity to go visit the set of Robert Wise at some, or, you know, yeah, or Kane through time travel. Certainly David would, Lean. <laughs> he loved yeah. him. Oh yeah. yeah, totally would go. And like, there might not be many people working at Spielberg's level right now, but maybe there is, maybe there is someone that he would be curious about learning from. And I think that there's like this possibility of continual learning is something yes. that we really need to orient our yes. brain towards. No, you're making a great point because also P.T. Anderson, another example of it is he's slowly become a cinematographer. He wasn't a cinematographer yeah. at the beginning, but he has become one and he's collaborated. He's like a co-cinematographer with his, the, the, who I've interviewed about Licorice Pizza, who was his gaffer on, on a number of projects. So there is like a constant learning and growth there for both of them. I mean, I always think a famous example with Spielberg is that after 1941, he was kind of in the dumps. And Lucas, who was his pal, was like, direct, you know, this Raiders of the Lost Ark thing. And they collaborate. There was like a lot of cross-idea pollination that resulted in something that's so unique and special and also both of them. And I think that that sort of ability to find the... Spielberg, I mean, Lucas used to invite all these people up to Lucasfilm and show them the new toys or Lucas Ranch, right? And there'd be all these directors, young and old, be playing with them and and like the Ron Howards and the Robert Rodriguez's and, you know, I think, and Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino collaborating. So I think that the idea of growth as a director being not competition with other directors and then you're off on an island, but rather like give and take from one another, work on things together. That's a model that we should follow more. And I know places like film schools and I know like Sundance does it, the labs. And I know film school promotes that mentality. But I think the industry at large still gives off a very like, you're all in it. It's a race, you know, a race to arrive, like you said. Well, and like, and you never arrive. You keep going. Yeah. You keep, you keep going, you keep learning, you keep growing, or else your work will just be an imitation of your last work. And you just try and do something, you know. You just try and stay open, awake, and alive all the time. And then going back to the article, how do we make it financially possible? You know, like I imagine PT got paid to shadow on Altman, but I don't know if PT got paid to sit in the SNL writers' room, but he had money for Magnolia theoretically to cover him. And, you know, the question, the thing we're missing by moving from this 22 episode season to this six episode season is writers used to get paid for that time where mm -hmm. they could still be paying their bills and paying rent. And like, also, right. frankly, LA used to be cheaper to live in. Like when I moved to LA, like LA was like radically cheaper than New York. And now I think of LA as being slightly more expensive than New York. Ugh. And so like, how do we, <laughs> how do we pay people? Cause you know, the thing about cinematography and editing is we're paying those assistants cause we need that work done. And right. what are the avenues that we can try and build back in the industry to make sure that there are avenues for people to continue to climb the ladder. And that's yeah, you the know tricky thing the, to figure out. The DGA apprenticeship thing that's so hard to get, but that people do. There, there, there's got to be more of that type of thing because you're right. The editors I know who have become full-fledged editors 
who started off apprenticing with other full-fledged editors as assistants learned so much because they, not just as an assistant, but like, because they'd see what the notes process was like. They'd watch the editor get the notes from directors, from showrunners, from studios. They'd watch them implement it. They'd hear them complain about it or whatever. And then they'd get opportunities because the editor they worked for was doing another gig. Like, and then the editor was like, hey, take my assistant, give him a shot. So many people, that's so much how it works. And I know you know this, but like, it's just a shame that that isn't part of the directing and writing culture. Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me is, and we should wrap with this and move on to our other things, but I wonder if as technology changes, there will be opportunities for new things. Like, so for instance, I was just thinking about like, right now, previs is very much something where you like, you go to a special company and they help you with previs and they do whatever. But then I'm constantly reading interviews with directors and DPs where they're talking about like, we went to the best previs house in town, but it was like impossible to get them to understand the vision. And like, I wonder if there's a possibility of like directors like hiring a 23 year old previs person that's like, okay, you're my full time year round previs person and you're going to learn the way I block scenes and you're going to learn my vision yeah. and you're going to learn my thing. And like, you know, cause like DIT wasn't a job 20 years ago and now it's a job. And like right. DIT is a job that like occasionally leads to cinematography. And like, I wonder if there are going to be new technology because, you know, I'm directing a thing this summer and I'm sort of like going through all of the tools that have come out. You know, I haven't directed anything this big since COVID and the last two years have had all of these new tools come out and it's great. And I'm like, you know, playing with all these new previous tools and I'm playing with all this stuff. And I'm like, if I were directing enough, I would absolutely really like to have an assistant that all they did was that. And that seems like something that like, and it's kind of common for like a new technology to first start with these special companies and then eventually move in house. And I think like that would be a great path yeah. where you're like, you know, if you did all of the previous stuff for Spielberg for 10 years, you would oh, probably be ready be to step class. into. Like literally yeah. a master, like a true master. Hey, don't forget, Please write for No Film School a story about all the new tools that a director is looking at and what you thought of them. Because that's so valuable. Like, and that's something we could update over time. <laughs> this oh, yeah. doesn't I mean, need to, to be, be honest, in the episode. Like, but honestly, it should be. Reviewed. Because, but yeah. here's the thing. I mean, uh, like I'll say, I only know about them because the press company, the press from all these companies emailed me to be like, you should play with this new thing we came out during COVID. And I yeah. I've written reviews. But you're right. I should write something about like, what are what are the tools we're using now in previs? What's actually working? What's not? Because actually, there's stuff I've reviewed in the last two years where I was like, I could see you using this, and now I'm actually trying to use it on a bigger job, and I'm like, ugh, not ready for prime time, guys. Yeah, you've got to do that because so many of our people don't like we. So many of our community, or you know, they they haven't had the opportunity to test it or review it. They could they probably love to know what's out there and what's good. Speaking of, let's move on to some tech news. So I'm going to yeah. I'm going to do the the one you probably have less comment on first and then I'm going to do the GI? one that I think <laughs> I'm I'm trying to guess what I think you you're going to think okay. cool. So we're going to talk DJI let's first. See. DJI came out with the Mini 3 Pro. The DJI Mini lineup is really exciting because there's basically it's 200 it's such a classic case of legal engineering or like regulatory engineering. So it's exactly 249 grams. Because 250 grams and above, it changes its classification with the FAA. So they've designed it from the ground up to be 249 grams, which like, I love. It makes me so happy. It's like, 
all right, so you're gonna, you guys are going to write this law? Well, we're going to skirt this law as hard as we can. What does um, it mean that, that they can do for those who don't? Under well, that I mean, so it, it is hard to say exactly. So like once you get above 250 grams, if you want to fly it for commercial purposes, you need to be licensed under part 107 of the FAA. Whereas drones under 250 grams, you can sort of just fly them without FAA license or certification. However, if you were to let fly them like professionally, even if they weigh that little, you should probably be part 107 certified, like any commercial use, even for something that lightweight. So like if you wanted to go out and get hired doing it, it wouldn't really matter. But like if you're like, I'm just going to fly in the park with friends or like I don't want to have to like permit or whatever, provided in your, you're in a place where you're allowed to fly, like you're not in, in a um, commercial fl- flight zone or too close to an airport or something like that. You can just sort of fly it without being part 107 certified. And that's in North America. And then there's also some other international regulations that sort of qualify for 250 grams. So there's sort of an argument DJI makes in their marketing that like, it's the drone that's easiest to travel with because you, you sort of have to worry the least. I mean, you should still Google local regulations, but like if you're doing a lot of travel work and you want to bring something with you, this is going to be the easiest to be like, I can fly it in the Bahamas. I can fly it in Canada. It's going to be okay. I see. However, I mean, 250 grams is really light. And so like you can feel it in your hands that like it's thinner plastic, like it's less durable. It's like not as strong. And the thing with a light drone is the motors are going to be less strong. So it's going to struggle more in the wind. Although I got a test unit and I flew it on a very windy day in New York. And I was really impressed at how well it, how smooth it was, despite how windy it was. Like it was definitely windy enough where I was like, this is not going to work. And it like Hmm. struggled, but like there's usable shots I got today. Where I was like, oh, okay, there we go, Mini 3 Pro. Like, this is an impressive amount of stabilization for how windy it is and how little you weigh. So, you know, it's like, the the thing I always like to think is like, there's sort of three levels right now of DJI drones. And then there's the Skydio, which I think is interesting, but like, their image quality isn't there yet. Like, like I love the automation tools in Skydio, but the image quality is not as nice. Whereas like the image quality, and this is like really nice, like it's got our dual native ISO, so, uh, so you can fly it at night. It, opens to an F1.7 so you can fly it in low light and like you get really nice looking images from it. They're quite pleasing. So I always like to think like if you're mostly using it as a filmmaker as like a scouting tool, like, oh, I want to get an overhead shot or I want to plan out a crane shot or something like that. This is the drone for you because like it weighs nothing. You can leave it in your kit bag all the time and always have it with you and you'll never have to worry about it. And like it's super easy to travel with. If you're thinking, I want to occasionally like like 20, 30% of my drone use, I actually want to get shots I'm going to use you probably want to bump up a level to like the Air 2S. And then if you're like, oh, 80% of my use is I want to get shots to use, then you're going to bump up to like the Mavic 3. Although honestly, for like 800 bucks, you get some really, like in the right circumstances, you can get some really nice shots with the little Mini Pro 3. I was really impressed. Hmm. Like what scale would you say, like it, like if your project is above X scale, then it's well, not- I mean, It shoots 4K 60. Yeah. I think it's more about the situations where it's going to get a nice looking shot. So like if it's one of those things where you're like, okay, the drone shot I want here is like a beautiful sunset of like, you know, over a nice mountain range. It's like, well, it's not going to look that different on a nice Mavic than it is on the Mini Pro 3 because like it's a beautiful image and and like if it's lit properly and you expose properly, like it doesn't dramatically differ. But like if if somebody's like, okay, I want to, I want to get a shot, and it's like a bike rider, and they're going over a bridge, and I want to be close up on their face, 
like you want to go to a camera with like better zoom capabilities, like the nice zoom you've got the Mavic three stuff like that. Hmm. So like the mini pro is just going to have a more limited number of shots. that can make look nice. The shots that can make look nice. You will look great and you'll intercut it with your other stuff and it'll look fine. So if, if you're just like, I'm going to keep it around for documentary shots. And every time I do a little documentary shoot, I want to like, I'll like run outside and get an establisher of the building we're shooting in. Be totally happy with the mini pro three. But if you're like, I want to start freelancing as a drone op, you're going to want something like the Mavic three. Cause you want something more versatile. So if a director is like, okay, and then I want to drift in on this person's face and then go around them and then pull back out. You're like, Oh, I actually need something with, with more power and a wider variety of lenses, which is what you get with the bigger unit. Does that make sense? Got it. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. So, yeah, I was super impressed. They also came out with like a new remote control that has a screen built in. DJI is really like hustling on stuff. And then the other tech news this week. So there's a whole lot of ways to get your files to people on the internet. You can use Dropbox, you can use Frame.io, you can use Google Drive. But one thing that a lot of people don't know is that like Google Drive and Dropbox and Box, which whatever, I guess it exists, but I never think about it. They're not like optimized for video. There's even that joke in that show, Silicon Valley, about like, when it comes to video, you might as well call it Dropbox Dripbox, because it's so <laughs> slow. Not not the world's best joke, but I remember it a decade later. Yeah. You know, those are, they're designed for like, you know, Office Docs, Word Docs, PDFs. Right. So Massive is a tool that is designed and optimized for video. And in my testing, I get about five times the speed by sending video files through Massive than I do for Dropbox. Now. I still do like 80% of my video sharing on Dropbox because a lot of times speed doesn't matter. Like I'll drop something in my Dropbox and I know it'll just upload overnight and I don't really have to worry about it or care. But sometimes speed does matter. Sometimes you're like, oh, I have this edit. It's got to get up. I got to get this footage. I got to get a delivery, yada, yada, yada. Sometimes speed matters a lot. And Massive is the tool for that because like literally like five times faster, same computer, same Wi-Fi, same everything, five times faster because the server is built specifically to move video files quickly. What's also cool about Massive is you're billed by the gig. So like, you know, if I use Dropbox to like send a client some files, like I can't go and like, I mean, I guess I could like try and charge the client for my monthly Dropbox subscription, but I'm never gonna. But Mm. if I'm under a deadline and the client's like, I need these hundred gigabyte of files now and I send them through Massive, I'll get a bill for Massive for that hundred dollar, for that hundred gig file delivery and I can just tack it on the invoice and make the client pay for it, which I love. I love that. That is, so let me ask you this. It's just a sending, not a storing. Yeah. Just like, a sending, not a storing. You okay. have like 30 so days. like a Google, Google drive. Right. Yeah. Okay. You don't want to leave them there. But so, so here's the cool like, shit that okay, just yeah, came out. Oh, go ahead. It would be like so if I had a video on my computer that I was working on and I was sending it to somebody for them to just download and have it working on. It wouldn't be like, it doesn't change your upload to like Google Drive or storage or anything like that. Uh, I think there are some integrations for Massive where you can send from Massive to storage platforms. Okay, I think you can that use would also Massive. be really cool. Because if you can get it up and down from storage platforms quickly, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I, w- I was reading their blog and I think I saw something about that where you have to, it's complicated with like logins and buckets and tokens and stuff, but I think you can do that. I believe. I think that is an option. But here's the cool shit they finally did. So if you've ever had like a file, like a, you know, a feature that you have to deliver right now 
Like I remember once driving from Los Feliz to Burbank because there was a post house in Burbank that had a dedicated super fast internet line. And for a hundred bucks, you could get on it and like deliver super fast to the internet. Cause like, you know, sometimes you'd be like, you got a file and it's got to get to Chicago in the next hour or whatever. Like that happens in life in post. I mean, you might as well drive to Chicago instead of Burbank. It's closer. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Burbank is like the worst. Although there's that sandwich shop that everybody loves that like, I remember going to use the internet and then getting a sandwich. It was a very good sandwich. I don't remember its name, but it was great. Anyway, huh. so Massive finally did the thing that motherfucker, thank you. Like, motherfucker, I'm so glad someone did this. So I'm sitting at home. I'm delivering to Massive. Massive itself is so fast that the bottleneck now is now my internet speed. And I'm like, check my internet speed. And Massive is still saying, well, it's going to take 30 minutes to deliver. And I'm like, oh, but I need to get this music video up now. Massive has built a new tool that lets you simultaneously connect to the internet in multiple ways. So like, does your phone have 5G? You can now tether to your phone and simultaneously both use the phone tether and the Wi-Fi. Now, let's say you've got like Mm. Verizon Fios at home, but your neighbor also has Verizon Fios. If you have your neighbor's Wi-Fi password, you can add your Wi-Fi to your neighbor's Wi-Fi. You need a Wi-Fi dongle for this, but those are cheap and your phone's 5G and send it over all three of those internet pipes at the same time. Interesting. Wow. You don't seem as impressed by this as I thought you'd be. I like when I was like, motherfuckers, you finally did it. Somebody finally did it. Cause that's the kind of thing that like, I don't know. I feel like I've been sitting in post houses so many times, like trying to do a last minute file delivery. And somebody's like, my phone has 5G. Could we switch to that? And I'm like, well, we could switch to it. But then it would only be that. And they're like, we can't do both at once. And I'm like, no, we can't do both at once. And for me, this is like both at once. Like, you know, if you have like a two-hour file delivery, you could cut it down to like 30 minutes by using four internets at the same time. That is really weird. So it's like crossing the streams. <laughs> like, it's bundling. It's like cross- it is exactly. That's the headline for this podcast. Massive finally <laughs> lets you cross the streams, except instead of proton packs, it's Wi-Fi. That, yeah, I mean, that's okay. what it is. Now I understand. I think I understand it better. That is really crazy. Okay, so we need to take a photo how- from Ghostbusters <laughs> of the crossing the streams, and then we put how like a Wi Fi logo on one and a I'm, 5G I, on another. So, I mean, it's just it's basic packet switching, right? Like all internet is packet switching where it breaks the data up and it sends okay. the packets over the path of least resistance. And, and this is spreading the packet switching over multiple upload networks. I see. So it's like the way that my dev- any of my devices can recognize that there are other devices connected nearby. That, yep. that it's like, let's just use all six. <laughs> yeah. And that way we'll get there way, way faster. Okay, that is, that is really crazy. That is really yeah. crazy. And, it, and yet, like, how come we couldn't do it all this time? I mean, doesn't because, it seem like now that it doesn't, isn't it like well, why if the machines knew that there were all the other networks, nobody built the software that was like, hey, by the way, machine, use all of them. <laughs> like, you know, is that well, is that what it is? The software is just the, telling. Yeah, I think the argument here is that most of the other competitors are not competing on speed. Like Google Drive, mm. Dropbox, Box. I've never seen an ad touting speed from them. Massive yes, is a because, newer player. Yeah, because yeah, they're slow as shit. Like and, their argument also is because, like you said, they're mostly for like. There's not a lot of t- these tools. We we like backwards rig for film. 
but they're not really yes. meant for us. They're not yeah. meant for us to send these massive files. Massive. Yeah. They're not. Files. Yeah. Huh? And they're not built for editing. Like, you know, I know some people who claim they figured out a way to edit video over Google drive, but like, I've not gotten it to work. The closest. Yeah, that sounds to like what, hell. Yeah. <laughs> what is going to work is Google's cloud drive solution, which works with Dropbox and uses Dropbox to like keep local files in sync, which I think is slick as fuck. And I think that's going to work. And I've already emailed both Blackmagic and Massive and said, please, can there be a massive Google Cloud integration coming soon? Because that mm. would be great because you guys have to make this all work together so I can bill my clients for this data moving. But Massive is a latecomer, right? They're later into the space. They're trying to find their niche. And they're like, oh, well, nobody else is arguing for speed, but let's argue for speed. And they were doing this before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has really helped them. Let's not say the pandemic's helped them because the pandemic's not helpful. But like, I think the situation of work from home Open has been one where they... Yeah. yeah, they've seen the opportunity of being like, oh, there's going to be times, you know, like I couldn't make it to shoot. I'm working on a long-term doc. I couldn't make it to shoot an event that needed to be covered. I hired someone to go shoot it. And like, uh, he has 130 gigs of media to get me. And like, you know, we've tried to meet up to do a hard drive handover, but with busy freelance calendars. And then like, you know, there was like a, we had an appointment to meet up and then someone I knew had COVID and I was like, oh, I'm not going to see anybody for five days while I keep getting tested. And, you know, like it's hard to hand media around to people. And like, I don't oh, have a pressing deadline It feels deadline so archaic to have to yeah. hand media around too. I mean, I'm just but thinking it, about like, even like NBA, NAB coverage for no film school, like this ability to quickly, to quickly send a file that's massive would be like, hey, we shot everything. It's going up right now. And the editor does not have to be anywhere nearby. They don't need to get, you know, yeah. Well, especially be because at least with Vimeo, once you're on Dropbox, Vimeo, you can just like when you're creating a new video on Vimeo, you can just do ad from Dropbox. It's so weird to me. YouTube still doesn't let you do that. You have to directly upload it to YouTube servers. And I'm like, but yeah. guys, Vimeo has been doing this for a decade. I'm sure there's some reason YouTube doesn't do that. But yeah. So, so, all right. I eventually sold you on that being excited. It's always, it's always yeah, that, unpredictable what George Edelman is going to cool. be excited by. <laughs> that is cool. I agree. That is cool. All right, so I'm on the internet at charleshain.com, on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm doing a bunch of youtube stuff lately, so join me on the youtube stuff because I'm enjoying making stuff for YouTube, and I hope you guys like it too. And I'm George Edelman, at George Edelman on Twitter. You can find out about everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram, and also YouTube, where there's youtube stuff for No Film School. But be sure to check out Charles's, of course. and. Oh, you know, send us a comment. Send us a question. We didn't we didn't have time for one today, but we love hearing from you. So at edit, editor at nofilmschool.com, send us a question. Let us know what you think. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave comments. Uh, have a great week. 